Well, good morning, everyone. Again, happy Father's Day. I think you're going to hear that a few times more this morning, most likely. Uh, our key scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up there. And I'll be reading it here for you this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, which you will eat or drink, or about your body, which you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, there are all kinds of dads out there, all different shapes and sizes and every level of colitude. That is a word that I made up. You're welcome. Um, But no matter, we dads are called upon to do very similar things. Uh, My sister and her family came into town last Sunday night and they were here uh, until Tuesday morning. And so we went out and did lots of things on Monday, uh, but one of the things we did was we went to Spring Lake and went out to the inflatable water park at Spring Lake. And my brother-in-law, Tad, who I just love to death, had the best time of anyone there on the inflatable water park at Spring Lake. And uh, he had his kids with him, his two kids. He had my kids following him. At one point, he stationed himself on the obstacle course so that any child that wanted to get past him had to fight the troll in order to get past him. And at, at, at any given time while he was on this thing, he had four to six children following him, wanting to see what he was going to do next and where he was going to go. Uh, it was pretty fun to watch him. That same night, Jed came into our bedroom at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and he was in terrible pain. His stomach was hurting him really bad, and he was snuggling with his mom, and we called the doctor, and we had to take him to the emergency room at 3 o'clock in the morning. So we went to the emergency room, and uh, we had him checked out, and they gave him some medicine, and we were all really tired, and so I laid on one of the hospital gurneys, and Jed got up on the gurney. Well, he allowed me to get on the gurney with him, I should say. And we laid there together and tried to rest and sleep in that place where we weren't really sure what was going on. Both of those things are dad things. They can be mom things too, don't get me wrong. But those were two dad moments on the same day that were completely opposite of one another. Right? And yet they serve some of the same same functions. 
When I think about being a dad, I am someone who worries. Some of you know this about me. I tend to internalize all my worry. Um, and I worry in general. I have problems with uh, anxiety, and uh, sometimes I have panic attacks or worry attacks where it feels like my chest is like in a cave-in on itself, and I can't breathe, and uh, I don't even know uh, oftentimes what makes that come on. But as a father, I, I worry about my kids. This is nothing new to me. We as parents often worry about our children. Are they happy? Are they becoming the people that we want them to be? Do they love God? Do they change their underwear today? I mean, there are so many things that we have to worry about. Um, and sometimes when I worry about my kids or when I worry about my life in general, I'm overcome by a sense of helplessness. And my sons have started picking up on that. Because the main thing I do when I'm frustrated or feeling helpless or when I'm worrying about something is I do this. <sighs> do it with me. Come on, you all know you want to. Ready? <sighs> I sigh. And they are now, they have like sigh radar, you know? I sigh and they're like, it's, it's like, you know, when the groundhogs all look up at the same time. You know, like what's going on? What's happening here? And so they, they, they respond to that. But this sense of helplessness that I have, it doesn't keep me from, from worrying. You know, it doesn't help me let go of my worry and give it to God. Instead, I hold on to it all the more because I feel like I need to do something. As their dad, I need to fix it. I need to make it right. I need to have the answers. And this verse that I just read from, from the words of Jesus is a reassurance to me because it gives us me one simple thing. And it says that God will take care of us. He will take care of us for a couple of reasons. Number one, and this is maybe the most important thing that we need to understand in a lot of these moments, is that God knows how to take care of us. He knows how to. He knows everything that we need, and he has practiced providing for the earth since the moment he spoke it into existence. And so if there is anyone that you can trust to take care of you, it is God. But the second thing is that he is a loving father. And as Jesus says, if he is willing to take care of plants in the way that he takes care of plants, don't you think that he is also willing to take care of you? It's a rhetorical question that he's asking because the answer is clearly yes. God can take care of me too. But here's the thing, and this struck me really hard yesterday. God cannot, or I should say more accurately, will not make me trust him. He will not make me love him. He will not make me rely on him. Instead, he does something that is so weird for the almighty all-powerful God of the universe. He tells us, I will take care of you because I love you and you will never have to worry with me. And he invites us to come to him, but we are the ones who choose whether or not he gets to be God in our life. Whether or not he is allowed to give us what he wants to give us 
Whether or not he's allowed to take care of us, whether or not we let him take all of our worry, all of our anxiety, all the things that are piling up around us, it is our choice whether he is God. And don't get me wrong, he's God all the time. But he does not force himself on us. Instead, he waits for us to allow him to be our loving Father. To allow him to be our loving Father. Are you letting God love you and take care of you in the way that he wants to? As we, uh, as we start together this morning, let's, let's say a quick prayer together. Heavenly Father, uh, you are so good to us. Um, there is nothing that stands, that can stand in front of you. You are the creator of this world. You are the lover of our souls. And God, we are grateful for this time that we have to come before you to encourage one another to learn from what uh, you have to say to us through your story. May our eyes and ears be open to see and hear what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was thinking this week about uh, some of the things that dads do. As I mentioned earlier, um, you know, we, we act kind of goofy with our kids sometimes. Sometimes we're protecting our kids. We can think of all of these different stories of experiences that maybe we had growing up. So here are some other things. Um, that I think dads do. Uh, dads open jars. True. A lot of truth to that. Um, dads wrestle with their kids. Um, dads go to work. Uh, we go to meetings sometimes. I remember Zeke was super excited when he had his first meeting. Like, he felt like that was really uh, being like me. Uh, dads attempt or pretend like they can fix stuff. A lot of the time, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. Uh, we make funny noises with our body. Uh, we chase away monsters. Uh, we have answers to all kinds of questions. And um, when, you, when you think about dads and some of the things that they've done, sometimes it's, it's hard. And I ask myself the question often. I know this seems kind of weird, but I do. What kind of father, what kind of dad do I want to be? Maybe I want to be like this guy. Uh, in Bentonville, Arkansas, for 40 exhausting minutes, Wade Goldberry battled a buck with his bare hands in his daughter's bedroom. He finally subdued the five-point white-tailed deer that crashed through a bedroom window at his daughter's home that Friday. So let me back up a second. Let me, let me preface this. Um, there at home, a five-point buck jumps through the window into the bedroom. Now, I don't know what you would do in that kind of scenario, but I think I would probably get everybody. Let's go outside. <laughs> there are people that handle this sort of situation. But homeboy goes in and wrestles the deer. Right? He goes in there and he wrestles the deer. Uh, he was about, he's about six foot one, 200 pounds. And he entered the bedroom to confront the deer and after a brief, a brief struggle emerged to tell his wife to call the police. Then he went back into the bedroom and kept fighting the deer until finally he got it subdued. Let's just say that he took care of the deer. The deer no longer caused problems for anyone. 
and he did this by hand. Yeah. Um, apparently, he got kicked several times, had several scrapes and bruises and things. Uh, the sheriff said that the guy walked bow-legged for a little while. Um, but it's interesting. Like, when you talk about dads, all of the multitude of images that can come to mind. Maybe you think of someone who is like super, super goofy and fun. Maybe you think of someone that is serious. Maybe you think of someone who can do these kinds of things like wrestle <laughs> large mammals to the ground. Um, there are all kinds of possibilities. And, and there are all kinds of things that fathers do for their families and for their kids. Um, and there are also some things that fathers are known for not doing very well, whether it's true or not. Uh, listening is one of those things. We're not always known as being good listeners. Um, sometimes fathers don't seem all that smart. Uh, just ask their wives <laughs> whether there are things they should have figured out and didn't. Um, sometimes uh, fathers act more like their children than the mothers would like for them to. Yes, I'm turning mothers into a bad guy in all these scenarios. I apologize. It's just it's, someone has to keep fathers in line. And it's not going to be the kids. But it does, it does make me wonder, and it does make me think about what it means to be a good dad. Now, there are so many different ways you can answer that question. Well, this is what it means to be a good dad, or this is what it means to be a good dad, or that is what it means to be a good dad. And I'm really thankful that Daphne said this morning, all of us were raised by imperfect men. And my children are being raised by an imperfect man. Uh, because that is part of it, um, that we are going to make mistakes and we are going to fail and mess up at different times. Um, but I do sometimes feel pressure to be the right kind of dad. You know, you meet a dad who's super outdoorsy and you're not, and then it's like, okay, so I've got to plan a backpacking trip into the wilds of Utah, and I've got to make sure that we almost die on the trip because that comes along with these kind of experiences that I need to offer for my children. Or you find, uh, you meet a dad who takes his kids all over the world and it's like, well, my kids have been to Fresno. <laughs> Which is a culture in and of itself. I, it, it does. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, Kent Kneeburn said, it is much easier to become a father than to be one. And there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, and so I've, I've been looking at the story. And uh, as you know, for those of you who have been here, and if, if you're new here with us, we have been looking at the Bible as a story, an, an overarching narrative that tells about God and his relationship with his people. And the point that we are at now in the story, I, ha- I hate to tell you this because um, this morning is going to sound a little bit like a broken record. Uh, We have covered some of this ground before. But we're going to come at it from a slightly different angle. We're going to try to, at least today. And it starts with a thought that I mentioned earlier. And that is this. I, I don't know what you felt about this. But I was so convicted when I thought about the concept that God wants to love me, wants to love you in a dynamic way, but he can't do it unless we let him. Like that was a pretty, that's a difficult concept for me to grasp. But if you start looking at the story in those terms, you see some interesting things happen. 
And you see this play out actually over and over and over again. For example, when God's people choose him to be their God, when they are serving no other gods, when they are relying on him and trusting in him, what happens to them? They are blessed. No one can stand against them. God pours out his blessings on them. He, he literally removes obstacles out of their way so that they can go to the place that he wants them to go. But the second that they choose to make something else a God instead of him, what happens? They find themselves being influenced by all of the cultures around them. They forget about God and they fall. They fall every single time. Because of this one simple choice, they decided to not let God be God. They decided to rely on something else. And again, don't get me wrong, God is always God. As I said last week, just because someone says that God not is, this doesn't mean that he ceases to be. Amen? God always is. But we see right now, and we have to as much ground as we've covered in the story, that there is a condition on God being God in our lives. We have to choose him. We have to put ourselves aside. We have to allow him to speak into our lives because God is always speaking. God is always doing. God is always moving. God is always acting. Wayne already raised the question this morning. We want to be a father like God is a father. And yet we see God being a father in the most difficult of circumstances, don't we? At what point in the story has it been easy for God to be a father to his people? Nothing's jumping to mind. I mean, there are good moments, yes? And there are moments where, like, when David goes out to meet Goliath, and he stands up for God in this passionate and just full of faith way that he does, and he calls out the giant, and who are you to speak against God? There are good moments for sure, but if you look at the relationship as a whole, as we've said a million times, it is a struggle for God to be a father to his people. And it's never God who's making it difficult. It is the people that are making it difficult over and over and over again. And we have seen people repeat the same mistakes, do the same things, make the same choices over and over and over again. And we have seen the same pattern. When God is their father and they allow him to be God in their lives, they cannot be stopped. But when they make a different choice, they fall every time. Every single time. And we saw it last week. The nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, ten of the tribes, they had a choice to serve God or <laughs> to choose something else. And what did they do? They chose something else. And so God gave them up. I've used this term a lot, and, and so I want to clarify this term a little bit this morning. I've used this term that God gave them up or gives them up. And I, and I want to be clear about what that means. 
What that means is that because his people chose something besides him, he allows for things outside to come in and hurt, destroy, take over his people. And if you remember from last week, there was a huge empire. Anyone remember the empire of Assyria that came in and they took the nations of Israel. And if you remember, they, they maimed people. They led them off with rings in their noses. Um, they humiliated everyone. They spread them out among all of the geography that they owned so that they couldn't come back together and be a people. They wiped them out. God, the Father, allowed that to happen after generations of them choosing something else. He allowed that to happen. Keep that definition in the back of your mind, okay? Because we're going to add something to it later. So, we still have Judah. And it was great last week to see the king of Judah stand up and make the right decisions, to speak up for God. And when that same nation of Assyria came and surrounded Jerusalem, what happened? God fought the battle for them and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian army while the nation of Judah was sleeping. So that when they got up the next morning, their enemy was defeated. Is there any better contrast between what it's like to live with God and without God than those two stories? I mean, it just smacks me in the face about what we are looking at here. And so our hope is, as we move through the story, that Judah is going to continue making good choices. And what is the good choice? We are going to let God be God. We are going to follow him. We are going to ignore all other gods. We are going to stick with God. And as long as they stick with God, they will succeed. And that's going to happen, right? (sighs) Hezekiah, the king of Judah who stuck with God, we don't know why. But his faith in God did not carry over to his son. And part of it might have been because... His son Manasseh took over the kingship when he was 12 years old. That's a lot of responsibility to put on a 12-year-old. And when you're 12, just, well, when you're 40, you are susceptible to the voices around you that speak the loudest. And Manasseh was surrounded by people who had different ideas. So here's where we are in the story today, where we're going to pick up. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hebzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. Okay, so the first mistake is what? He backtracks, and what does he bring back into the nation of Judah? He brings idols back in. That's bad enough, right? That's bad enough. And that has proven to be enough over time to totally derail the nation. But Manasseh is an overachiever, and so he doesn't stop there. He rebuilt the high places, brought in the Baal and the Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, 
practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Do you think? Listen to what he did. He not only restored these altars, where did he put them? In the temple. In the house of God. In the one place that God said, this is my home, this is where you will find me. My feet will rest here as I am in the rest of the earth. He put the stuff there. And then what does he do? He worships the starry host and goes so far as to sacrifice his own child to the starry hosts. He is worshiping, he's looking for signs, omens, did all of these different things. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did, get this, more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So, if you remember from the story, when the Israelites come and they reach the promised land, what's the problem? There's already people there, right? The Canaanites are already there. And who do they worship? The Baals and the Asherahs and all these different things. And so God drives them out. The people go in, they take the land, these people are driven out or destroyed. But listen to what this reflection is about them at this point in the story. They, at this point in the story, God's people are worse than the people they drove out when they came in. That is pretty far from God. Which makes me think we have to rethink a little bit how we are seeing the relationship between God and his people. We have to rethink it a little bit. Because one of the things I think we fail to consider is how much distance the people are putting between themselves and God. How far away from him they are getting. I mean, God's not even a speck on the horizon at this point. They have taken his house and given his house to these other gods. They have done all these things and it's gotten so bad that they did more evil than the nations the Lord destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, we knew this was coming, right? There's always a therefore. When people make choices to walk away from God, there is always a therefore. Just let me find it on my page. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. It's a lot of disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the north, if you remember, which has already fallen. And the plumb line used against the house of Ahab, who was the king of of, uh, Israel at the time. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. 
wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of their enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end besides the sin that he had caused you to to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so what is God's response to everything that has happened? It's over, right? No, it's not. Because listen to this last part. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he... Listen to this. In his distress... He sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. What? What just happened? Manasseh did more evil than anyone. He led the, the, the nation of Judah into this place. So God gives them up. And Assyria comes in and leads off. Now this is important because we're going to see a progression here. He leads off Manasseh, but he doesn't destroy Jerusalem. Okay? Doesn't destroy Jerusalem. But he leads off Manasseh. Manasseh finds himself in trouble and realizes what he's done. And what's the first thing he does? God, where are you? Deliver me. And what does God do? He delivers him. He delivers him. Keep that thought in the back of your mind. But there's something I want you to know. Things have changed. Things have changed. Because Manasseh is not really king of Judah anymore. I mean, he is. But who is really in charge now? The king of Babylon. Right? That is the person who is now in charge. It's a crazy story when you look at that. God did everything, but here's what we see, okay? God reaches out to them. He reached out to the prophets. We're talking now about uh, the end of the life of Isaiah. Some some, um, uh, history books say that Manasseh killed Isaiah, that he put him to death. But we have more prophets that are coming. We have Jeremiah, we have Ezekiel in particular during these times. And um, so God keeps trying to reach out to them and they don't listen. God gives them up. He lets them go into captivity. He lets the king of Assyria come in and take Manasseh captive. And when everything fell apart, Manasseh prayed to God and God sent him back to Jerusalem. The people of Judah, they were humbled, but they were not defeated. Now, Let's just say that you go off on your own way and you fail miserably. And you realize that you failed miserably. And you call out for help and help comes. And help restores you and brings you back. In theory, in theory, how long does that experience stick with you? 
I mean, we're talking like severe circumstances. Being let off by the nose. Right? This should stick with you. And you would think, if this happened to my grandfather, let's just say, that he was let off into captivity and was restored once again, that story would still be told. And I would tell it to my children, who would tell it to their children, because it would be something you don't ever forget. And it is something that forms, but there's something else that we know about this, right? What it meant to my grandfather and to his children, when it comes to me, does it mean as much? Well, it's still pretty cool, right? But it doesn't mean quite as much as it did to those that came before me. And to my children, it doesn't mean as much as it did. It starts to lose its potency after a while, right? And we've seen this. We've seen a couple of generations go by and things are forgotten. And unfortunately, the people of Judah didn't learn their lesson from this. I mean, God spared them, but they did not learn their lesson. That could be the title of the story. They did not learn their lesson. There were some ups and downs. About 30 years and three kings later, a man named Jehoiakim took the throne. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord just as his predecessors had done. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you've heard of Nebuchadnezzar, um, king of Babylon invaded the land. And Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. In other words, he was still king, but he serves the king of Babylon. The Lord sent Babylon, uh, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Jehoiakim rested with his ancestors, and Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was, I can't say that, Nehushta, daughter of Elnathan. She was from Jerusalem. He did what, church? Evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. Just as his father had done. So we have an explanation for his bad behavior, don't we? He learned it. Just as his father had done. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and they laid, they laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials all surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut up the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile, all the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin, captain of Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 skilled workers and artisans. Okay. They were brought back and restored, and they still had Jerusalem, and they still had who they were, until what happened? They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what does God do? 
he allows Nebuchadnezzar to come and to defeat them. And this time, what does Babylon take? They take pretty much anything of value to the nation of Judah, including going into the... This is a big deal. I know, it's, I know that the temple was already desecrated by what Manasseh did, but this is a big deal, including going in and taking all the gold off that Solomon had put out. Do you remember the descriptions of how much gold and bronze and silver was like dirt on the ground? Do you remember all that? He takes all that down, breaks it down. So basically, the temple is stripped It's a car on blocks with no seats or steering wheel. This is what it is. And then he takes off the king, all of his family, all the artisans, all their warriors. He takes all of that back to Babylon. And what is left? The poor and the city of Jerusalem. It's important to note that. Jerusalem is still there. Jerusalem still has a wall. Because after all, the Babylonians, what did they do? They had to lay siege. Why do you lay siege? Because you can't get through the wall. Okay? So, their king was defeated and they're under the control of Babylon. And they they, they took all these people to the nation of Babylon. So you can probably see where this is going. Okay? Because in spite of this, Judah still had one very important thing. And it was the thing, if you think about it, it's the thing that really made the nation of Israel when it was united. It was their point of pride. And that is the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the place where the temple is. It's their capital. It means so much to them. And they still had this place. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. Really? He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So it's defiled even more. There are two things, two biblical insults used to describe people that are basically the, the worst that you can say about them. The first one is that they are stiff-necked. When your neck is stiff, what can you not do? You cannot turn your head, which means you cannot look from side to side. Zedekiah is stiff-necked, which means what? He is facing one direction. And even though God is trying to correct him, he will not look to God and recognize what it is. And even though he's surrounded by Babylon, he will not look at Babylon and give to them. He is going this way, because he is Zedekiah and Judah is awesome. Right? This is his plan. He is going to stick to this. And the second thing, the second insult, is that you are hard of heart. Which means what? Nothing sinks in. It just bounces off. Nothing gets in, it just bounces off. So, in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege 
until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Two years they were kept under siege. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Now, on the surface, it seems like God has kind of just said, let things go. Where was his mercy and where is his faithfulness? Well, Zedekiah wanted Jeremiah to step in on their behalf and ask God for help. So he tried to pull Manasseh. We're in tough spot here. There's no food. We're dying. Jeremiah, would you go and speak to God for us so that God will turn this all around? Jeremiah didn't have such kind words to say to Zedekiah. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher son of Malchijah and the priest Zephaniah son of, that's Masia, maybe? Masia. They said, so here it is, Inquire now of the Lord for us because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past so that he will withdraw from us. But Jeremiah answered, so there, we need to make a quick distinction. When Manasseh turned back to God, what was it that he did? Do you remember? The Bible describes it in certain ways. He humbled himself before God. So he realized his state, and then when he called out to God, God helped him. Well, this situation is a little bit different. Because listen to the language that they use again. Okay? They said, will you, where is it? Inquire now of the Lord for us because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past so that he will withdraw from us. They are not humbling themselves before God. What are they doing? They're asking if God will fix it for them. But there is no repentance. There is no changing of heart. Because we already know Zedekiah is stiff-necked and hard-hearted. So none of that is present. But Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath, I will strike down those who live in this city, both man and beast, and they will die of a terrible plague. After that, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in this city who survived the plague, sword and famine, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who want to kill them. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion." God's not playing anymore. Furthermore, there's a furthermore. Tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. I have determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will destroy it with fire. Okay, let's get this straight. They go to Jeremiah to say, Jeremiah, can you have God fix this for us? And Jeremiah says, no, God's not going to fix this for you. In fact, 
In fact, and we can't gloss over the language, God is going to make it worse for you. You can stay in the city, and this place is going to burn down. Your own weapons will be used against you. You can die here. Or you can leave now, surrender to Babylon, and become slaves. Those are your two options. What is not offered? Redemption, forgiveness, salvation, restoration. None of those things are offered. Why? This is an important question. Why? There's no repentance. There was no turning back to God. There was no allowing God to be God. Instead, they were trying to use him for their own benefit without really letting him be God again. God is not that dumb. He's not dumb at all. But as much as he loves his people, he's not going to be fooled by this. And so he says, no. Given who you are, what you've done, your attitude, your relationship with me, you have two choices. Stay here and die or leave and become slaves. How do you feel about that? Just curious. It feels harsh. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two inner walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled toward Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. Interesting, isn't that? All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. We talked about how cruel Assyria was last week. Think about this. What was the last thing Zedekiah saw? His children dying. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. Okay. I don't, I don't know how else to view this other than to say the dream that God had when he brought his people, when he, when he approached, when Moses comes in Egypt and says, you know, set my people free, I'm going to take you to a land that will be yours, when he says all these things, it's all gone. Church, it's, it's all gone. And it's gone because the people would not... Let God be God. They have a choice over and over again. They could have chosen him. But they didn't. And because they didn't, God 
gave them up to their enemies. They were tortured, they were humiliated, they were let off, they were hardly a people anymore, and more importantly, their capital city was destroyed. Absolutely destroyed. What can they hang on to now? Nothing. There is nothing that they can hang on to. So it's over, right? No, it's not. God had used uh, his prophets all this time to try and reach his people. Ezekiel actually went into Babylon in exile. Jeremiah stayed behind um, and stayed there in Jerusalem in the area. Ezekiel had all kinds of crazy visions. Um, But listen to this one as we finish up here today. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, say this with me, and I will do it. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying there was a noise a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the the Sovereign Lord says. Come breathe from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they might live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know what? I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. 
and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. I don't know if you are as astounded by this as I am. The people by all rights are gone, dead, the flesh has been picked off of them, the bones are dry and useless, and God says what? I will change everything to where these dry bones will live, to where this desolate place will be like the Garden of Eden, to where he will breathe his life back into them, and everything will be made new once more. God, even through all of this, even though his people are gone, speaks through Ezekiel to the people in exile in Babylon. And guess what he is asking of them? Can I be your God? Can I be your God? Can I restore you? Can I love you? Can I bring life to you once more? Can I take you back home? Can we rebuild everything that was destroyed? Will you let me be your God? Because someday, those who are mine will find that everything is new. What makes a good dad? We see in these kings and these families, we see men who are focused on the right now on what's right in front of them. We see them focused on what they can get. We see them focused on power and gathering things to themselves. But from God, and it's, I want to recognize, it's ridiculous to say we should be a father like God. God is pretty far above us. But what we mean when we say that is there are things we can learn from God about what it means to be a good father. He pours himself into his people. He makes every effort, tries anything to reach them. He punishes when he has to, but you could also call it letting the people go their own way. He is always ready and willing to take his children back. And perhaps the best thing about him in this story is that God knows exactly who he is. He is not fighting with anyone for supremacy, for the role of God. He knows he is God, and he is waiting for his children to know it as well. And when they do, when they do, the world will change. A good father loves his children passionately without end acts in the best interests of his children at all times. He remains a father even when his child runs from him and he is looking forward to the day when his child comes back. This is the kind of father that God is for us. As imperfect and flawed as we are, God wants to make us new as well. 
He wants the dry bones to rise up and live again. He wants the Garden of Eden to live in the desert. You know why? You know how it's even possible? Because He is the Lord. And He has done it. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this story which brings into sharp perspective how we treat you and also how you love us. And Father, I think this morning I am especially grateful that you are a God who does not turn from his children. You let us go our own way. You don't keep us from making mistakes. But no matter what we have done, no matter where we are, no matter where we have gone, Father, you look to us and you long for the day where we will let you love us. When we will let you pour out your blessings on us. When we will say, you are our God and we can be our people. So that the story of this world is that you are the Lord and you have done this. God, reveal to us the ways that we are keeping you from being God. And put us into us the desire, the realization to know that with you as our God, there is nothing that can stand against us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any prayers or need for encouragement this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.